Amen. Amen. Thank you, men. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome to our church. We're so glad that you're here. Or maybe today's the first time in a long time. In that case, welcome back. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're back home. About 18 months ago, in June of 2022, we commissioned Pastor Peter Kim, his wife Jane, and a small team from our church to start a new daughter church in Tyson's. And then on the first Sunday of December 2022, uh, they, had, they held their first public worship service as a church. And last Sunday, on the first Sunday of December 2023, they celebrated their one-year anniversary, and I had the privilege of joining them and celebrating with them. In a span of 18 months, from their commissioning to last Sunday, our daughter church has grown and blossomed from a group of about 25 people to a church that is already packing out the old firehouse community center in McLean. There were over 100 people at the service last Sunday, and it was amazing. But the most meaningful and the most memorable part of the service was when they inducted their first members in their church's history. To see about 35 people streaming to the front as they took their membership vows to join the church, well, that sight was awesome. It took my breath away. It almost made me cry, but it didn't. But it did make Pastor Peter cry. And so um, I shamelessly took some pictures and videos because I wanted to show you what's happening at our daughter church. So if we can show this slideshow. God for what he's doing in Tyson's. And the reason why you couldn't hear Pastor Peter at the end was because that's when he was breaking up and about to cry. Um, but by the way, if you ever get a chance, go visit our daughter church in Tyson's. You'll be so encouraged to see the good and beautiful work God is doing uh, in and through our daughter church. Just fantastic. Well, we're currently studying the book of Galatians uh, this fall, and we're calling the sermon series, Getting the Gospel Right. And, and the goal of this series is to not only get the gospel right, but then, having gotten the gospel right, to walk in line with the truth of the gospel because that's when we experience the freedom and the fruitfulness that Christ intends for us as his people uh, for the joy of our own hearts, for the good of our neighbors, and all to the glory of God. And today's sermon, the title of today's sermon is Keep in Step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 25 and then to chapter 6, verse 2. Four verses uh, today. People of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So verse 25 says that if we live by the Spirit, then we ought to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it look like for someone to walk in the Spirit? Well, to live by the Spirit means that the Spirit has made you alive in Christ, uh, that the Spirit has given you new life by causing you to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So in other words, those who live by the Spirit are Christians. So this command is given to everyone who lives by the Spirit. It's not given to like church leaders or to a special class of Christians. It's given to all Christians. It's given to whoever lives by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, then you are to walk by the Spirit. So whether you've been a Christian for four weeks or for 40 years, it doesn't matter. You are commanded, you're exhorted in this text to walk by the Spirit if you indeed live by the Spirit. So back to that question, what what does that look like? What does it mean? What does it look like for a Christian to walk in the Spirit or to keep in step with the Spirit? Is it about praying in tongues and practicing the charismatic spiritual gifts? Is it about being pious and religious? Is it about attending prayer meetings and and doing quiet times and and stuff like that? Or is it about uh, feeling emotionally close and near to God as you sing and worship God? What does it look like? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Uh, When I was a college student, there was a sister uh, in our college fellowship uh, who we all thought was very spiritual. Uh, She would do really, really long quiet times, like hour-long quiet times, reading her Bible, journaling, praying, and she would even play the guitar by herself, singing praise songs to Jesus by herself. She seemed to love Jesus a whole lot. She seemed to be very full of the Spirit. But strangely, she was a very difficult person to be around. She was self-righteous, impatient, judgmental, and harsh. And she made the rest of us feel like we didn't take our faith seriously. And she somehow made us feel like we were distractions uh, for her as she, had a, she wanted a single-minded devotion to Christ. And she would say some weird things like, you know, we'd be all hanging out. And she said, I'm, I'm so sick and tired of you guys. I'm going to go spend time with Jesus. And she would leave and go into her room and start doing quiet time by herself. It's kind of weird, right? And I remember thinking, something's off with her. Um, she seems to be so filled by the Spirit. She, she prays and reads the Bible more than anyone I know. She seems to love Jesus so much, but why doesn't she like us? Why is she so mean and so unpleasant to be around? You see, she loved loving Jesus, but she didn't love loving Christians. Our text today tells us that walking in the Spirit shows up in our horizontal relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. According to our text, people who walk by the Spirit, who walk in the Spirit, are people who love people. People who relate to other people in ways that are healthy and Christ-honoring. You see, the first and the great evidence 
that we are walking in the Spirit is not some mystical, private, religious experience, but it shows up in our practical relationships of love with one another. If you do all sorts of religious and spiritual things, like attending church worship services or attending prayer meetings or attending Bible studies or even attending community group meetings, you do all of that, and yet you don't know how to relate well with other Christians. You don't love and serve other Christians very well. You may not be walking as much in the spirit as you may think you are, at least not according to our text. And today, since our text is so short and so dense, what I want to do is kind of go through it verse by verse and and allow our text to show us what it means to walk by the Spirit. And you're going to see walking by the Spirit means that the people around us get blessed. It looks like people around us being loved and served, as we're going to see in our text. So let's start from verse 26. It says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So to walk in the Spirit means that we do not become conceited because conceit will cause us either to provoke one another or envy one another. And we don't relate well with others in healthy ways when we're provoking one another or envying one another. Now why does conceit do that? Well, the Greek word translated as conceit or conceited is the Greek word kinodoxai, which literally means empty of glory. So to be conceited means that you are hungry for honor. You're hungry for glory. So conceit is actually a very deep insecurity, an absence of uh, honor, and a hunger for honor. And this absence of Honor And this hunger for honor causes us to do what? It causes us to need to prove ourselves to, to ourselves and, and to others. And that causes us to compare ourselves with others, and that impacts how we relate to others. You see, what we think about ourselves has tremendous impact on how we relate to other people. You see, if we're insecure about who we are, if we're insecure about our worth, our value, and our identity, then that will negatively impact our relationships with one another. Listen, our conceit, our hunger for honor will cause us to relate to one another in one of two unhealthy and toxic ways. So the first toxic and unhealthy way that we can relate to others is by provoking. Provoking is the posture of someone who thinks that they're superior to others and they look down on others who they think are inferior to them, either in worth or giftedness or beauty or whatever it is, achievements. You just think you're better than others. Now, this is what we usually mean when we call someone conceited, right? Oh, she's so conceited. What do we mean? She thinks she's better or superior to other people. But our text tells us that that's not the only form of conceit. Conceit can show up in another way. You see, the other toxic and unhealthy way to relate to one another because of conceit is to envy. Envying is the posture of someone who thinks that they're inferior to others. And they're now looking up with envy and jealousy at others who they feel like is superior to them. Either in gifts or worth or value physical appearance or or wealth, whatever it is, you feel inferior to that person. You see, feeling inferior and feeling envious is also an expression of conceit because you're still comparing yourself to others. 
So you can be conceited by both feeling superior and by feeling inferior to others. You see, both are empty and hungry for honor and glory. You see, the only difference is that the ones who feel superior are those who think that they beat others, while those who feel inferior are those who think that they lost to others. But both are conceited because both are empty and hungry for honor. Pastors' conferences can be um, places of great blessing, but they can also be very dangerous and toxic places, especially for conceited pastors, for pastors who are hungry for honor and they're looking to get their honor through the size of their church. You see, when pastors meet each other for the first time, I'm letting you in on a little ugly trade secret here. When pastors meet each other for the first time at these conferences, it's very common for pastors to size one another up. And do you know how you size one another up? By the size of our churches. And so the question inevitably comes up, so how big is your church? How many people gather on a Sunday morning for your Sunday worship services? And I hated that question especially when I was a younger, insecure pastor, because if a pastor told me that his church was bigger, then I would be tempted to feel inferior to that pastor, and I would be tempted to envy him, to envy his gifts, to envy his staff, to envy his church. But if another pastor were to tell me that his church was smaller than mine, then I was tempted to feel superior and to boast in my staff, to boast in my church, and to boast in my gifts. You see, so at these conferences, it's so gross. You would have pastors of bigger churches kind of strut around, feeling like they're better than everyone else, while pastors of small churches would just kind of walk around with slumped shoulders, feeling inferior. Absolutely disgusting and gross. But here's the thing. Both of those pastors were being conceited because both were hungry for honor. The only difference is that some pastors won the church size competition and the other pastors lost. Toxic, disgusting, and gross. You know, pastors are broken and messed up people just like you. And, and we can struggle with pride and envy just like everyone else. And listen, when you're conceited as a pastor, when you're hungry for honor as a pastor, it makes you very competitive. It makes you see other pastors and other churches as competition to beat, not as partners to collaborate with. You see, when you're conceited and competitive as a pastor, do you know what you build? You build rivalries, not relationships. And when you do that, it makes true friendship and collaboration among pastors nearly impossible because our conceit ruins and destroys our relationship with one another and we relate to one another in unhealthy and toxic ways. So a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, though they seem like opposites, they're actually both forms of conceit. Did you know that low self-esteem and self-hatred are not marks of gospel humility? They're as much a rejection of gospel humility as pride and self-confidence are. You see, both a superiority complex and an inferiority complex are rooted in the hunger for honor. They're just two different outworkings of the same hunger for honor. 
If I can paraphrase verse 26, it would be in this way. Do not let your hunger for honor make you either despise people or envy people. But how how do we do that? How do we not become conceited? Well, the gospel is the only thing that can truly address our hunger for honor, our conceit. God is honorable. God is glorious, right? And because we're image bearers of God, because we're created to reflect God, it is natural and right for us to desire honor and glory as well. Because image bearers of a glorious and honorable God should also be glorious and honorable. But where we go wrong is when we seek to have our hunger for honor and glory satisfied apart from God, apart from his great love for us in Christ. And when we don't receive the honor and the glory that we were built for, that we desire so much, when we don't get it from God, where do we look? We look horizontally. We look to get it from others by beating others, by being better than others, by being richer than others, by being prettier than others, by being more athletic than others, by being whatever it is than others, wherever you find your hunger for honor and glory satisfied. And when you do that, it makes you either self-confident because you're winning or makes you self-disdaining because you're losing. And when that happens, it makes our relationships with one another toxic and unhealthy. You see, you cannot love and serve people that you feel superior to or inferior to. You cannot love people that you disdain, and you cannot love people that you envy. Apart from the gospel, apart from finding your glory and your honor in Christ, you will be forced to either feel superior or inferior, or you'll go back and forth, and sometimes around some people you feel superior, and around others you will feel inferior. But the gospel gives us the honor and the glory that we hunger for and need. The gospel tells us that in Christ, that God honors us, that God sees us, that God approves of us, that God notices us, and that God loves us. And if we can believe that, and if our hunger for honor and glory can be satisfied by being honored by God, think about this, the God of the universe knows you, knows your name, and loves you. What can be more honorable? What can be more glorious than that? And if you can actually let that gospel truth sink in and have your hunger for honor satisfied by the honor that God gives you in Christ, when you're satisfied and filled up, guess what? You stop looking for honor from people and from relationships. Then and only then will you be truly free to stop chasing honor by trying to compete against or beat other people, and you'll be free to stop comparing yourself with others. Because we have true and lasting honor and glory from God in Christ, you don't need to try and get it from other people. The gospel frees us to love and serve people. The gospel frees us to be humble and kind. Listen, the gospel frees us to be humble and kind around people that we once used to disdain because we thought we were better than them. And the gospel also frees us to be secure and confident around people who once intimidated us, who made us feel like we were less than them. You see, the gospel frees us 
to no longer provoke people, but to treat all people with honor, dignity, and respect and love because all people are image bearers of God. Whether the world considers them successful or not, that doesn't matter. We treat everybody with dignity and honor. And the gospel also frees us to no longer be envious or jealous of people, but we can now rejoice with those who rejoice. We can now even celebrate other people's successes without feeling threatened or resentful. The gospel frees you to do that. You see, when you walk in the Spirit, you will not be conceited, and the Spirit will give you the power to love people and to live in relationships with people in a healthy and Christ-honoring way. Let's look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1 now, which says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When someone is caught in sin, it is the responsibility of those who are spiritual to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual, who's Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to people who live by the Spirit, who walk by the Spirit. So if you live by the Spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, then you are spiritual. So Paul is referring to all Christians. He's not referring to a special class of Christians or to church officers or to church leaders, but he's referring to anyone uh, who lives by the Spirit. They are the spiritual ones, and it is their responsibility to gently restore someone when they're caught in sin. Now, it's self-evident truth that all of us sin, right? Whether it's in our thoughts, words, and deeds, all of us sin. I sin, you sin, we sin against one another. That happens every day, all the time. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, love covers over a multitude of sins. And so when someone sins against you, as a Christian, you're called to forgive them and to overlook their sin just as Jesus forgave your sin and overlooked your sin, right? But there will be times when a fellow Christian brother or sister is caught in sin. Now, this is not referring to a sin that a Christian commits, but to a sin that seems to control a Christian brother or sister, to a pattern of sin that is harming them and harming those around them. And if that pattern of sin is left unchecked and unconfronted, and if that brother or sister continues down that road, it will lead to disaster and destruction and ruin. And in that case, when a brother or sister is caught in sin, we must not overlook it. We must lovingly and gently confront him or her for the sake of restoring them. Recently, I learned a new word. I love this word. It's called carefronting. Carefronting versus confronting, because carefronting is better than confronting. So, what is carefronting? Carefronting is you, you confront someone. But you do so with care and gentleness, with the goal of helping them and restoring that person that you're care-fronting. The goal is not to shame them, to expose them, or to cancel them, but the goal is to help them, to mature them, grow them, and to restore them. And we are to care-front, if you will, we are to care-front those who are caught in sin, who are stuck in a pattern of sinful behavior that is harming them and harming others. A few years ago, I'm going to get very vulnerable. I hope that's okay. A few years ago, I was caught in a sin. I was stuck in a pattern of sinful, 
selfish, and explosive anger, especially toward my children who were teenagers and in high school at the time. One evening, my son and I, Caleb and I, had, were having pho for dinner, along with Lizzie, my youngest daughter, and her best friend. And over dinner, Caleb said something that was so out of line, so disrespectful, and with such a disrespectful tone, that even though we were in a public space, I exploded. And I said and I did something that was so sinful that I regret it to this day. I'm so ashamed of. And what I did to my son harmed our relationship. It could have destroyed our relationship. Now, the next day, I shared with the other pastors during our accountability time what happened between my son and I. And honestly, I was hoping to get some sympathy and compassion. I was hoping that the other pastors would say, totally justified, I can't believe he did that. He had every right to re uh, react in that way. I was hoping to get some of that. But you know, Pastor Bobby, he always disappoints me. And instead of showing me compassion, he care-fronted me about my sinful pattern of explosive anger. And with tears in his eyes, he begged me. He begged me to get a handle on this and to repent of this and to get some help because he was so concerned about me. He was like, oh, you could lose your job as a pastor if you don't get a handle on this. But more importantly and worse, you could lose every relationship that you hold dear over this unless you get a handle on your anger. Bro, no one's going to be around. Your kids aren't going to want to be with you if you continue down this road. Now, when Pastor Bobby was saying these things, I, I, I didn't want to hear it. It was hard to listen to. But I was able to receive it because I knew he loved me. And what he was sharing with me was, was not to shame me or to expose me, but to restore me. And that day... The Holy Spirit used that carefrontation to bring me to my senses as I realized that I, unless I get a handle on my anger problem, it could cost me everything that I hold dear. And so I began to see a counselor to help me deal with my anger problem. Now, I still struggle with anger to this day, but by the grace of God, I, I, I think I've come a, a long way. I'm still daily trying to battle and put to death this sinful, explosive anger in me. But, you know, um, I thank God for Pastor Bobby, who loved me enough, who was courageous enough to confront me, to care front me, because I believe that God used Pastor Bobby to save me, to save my ministry, and to save my family. Because if I continued down that road, I don't know where. I, I shudder to think where I would be. I might be kicked out for being an abusive pastor. And I might lose all my relationships with all my kids. You see, friends, when you see a brother or sister who is caught in sin, 
a pattern of sin that is ruining them, a pattern of sin that is harming them, a pattern of sin that's harming others. We, as those who are called to walk in the Spirit, we are to care front one another. We're to confront one another with a spirit of gentleness for the purpose of restoring them, not canceling them, not rejecting them, but to restore them. And parents, let me say this. When you see patterns of sin in the lives of your children, that drive you crazy. And if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Instead of yelling at them in anger, would you consider care fronting them? Because they're your brothers and sisters in Christ too. You know, when you yell at them in anger, you're trying to control them or trying to punish them with fear. And you're really actually just thinking about yourself and your own comfort. But when you care front them, you're trying to love them and restore them. And you're thinking about them and their welfare. Now, parents, I know it's a lot easier and a lot more effective when you yell and go crazy. They just seem to listen better when the, uh, <laughs> the volume goes up, right? And though in the short term it feels more effective, we do unknown, untold damage to our relationship with our kids when we do that. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you see your kids acting a fool, would you care front them instead of yelling at them? Amen? And I think that would be good for your relationships with your kids. Lastly, let's look briefly at verse 2, which says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this verse assumes that we all have burdens, no matter who you are, no matter what your profession is, no matter your age, no matter what season of life you're in, we all have burdens. We all have different kinds of burdens, every single one of us. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have burdens. And God does not want us to carry our burdens alone. But some people try because our culture tells us strong people don't need help from other people. You carry your burden by yourself. You don't need any help. You're the one that gives help. You don't need help. That attitude, though our culture praises it, is actually not very Christian at all. Because God wants us to bear one another's burdens. Now, of course, we cast our burdens on Christ first and foremost. But one of the most important ways that Christ bears our burdens is through his body, through the members of his body, through the brothers and sisters that we have in the family of God. You see, when a, a Christian brother or sister comes and bears your burden with you, do you realize it is Christ himself who is coming in and through that person? It is Christ himself who is bearing that burden with you through his member of his body. And when you go to bear burdens with someone else, it is Christ himself who goes through you and in you to help bear the burden of your brother or sister. You see, our text tells us that when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is this, that Christians are to love one another as Christ loved them. This is the new commandment that Jesus gave us, right? That we love one another as Jesus loved us. And when we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. We're loving one another as Christ loved us. You see, the law of Christ is fulfilled not when we do something spectacular, amazing, heroic, you know, once in a blue moon to do something amazing. No, 
we, we fulfill the law of Christ when we do the daily, mundane, boring, unimpressive thing of bearing one another's burdens. You see, burden bearing is so ordinary. It's so simple. Anyone can do it. Everyone can do it. You don't need gifts or resources to bear burdens. All you need is love and humility. To bear someone else's burdens, you need love. To receive help, to have other people help you bear your burdens, requires humility. See, love and humility are required for us as a community to bear one another's burdens because there will be times when you're going to be able to bear someone else's burdens and there are going to be times when you're going to need others to bear your burdens. That's how we do it together as a family. And people who walk in the Spirit bear one another's burdens and so we fulfill the law of Christ. Do you realize that, not, that um, nothing makes us resemble Jesus more than when we help bear one another's burdens? Because when we bear someone else's burdens, we, we don't just resemble Jesus, but more importantly, we point to Jesus, who is the true burden bearer. Christ loves us, and he bore our crushing burden, the burden of our sin, the burden of guilt, the burden of shame, the burden of being under the condemnation of God for our sins. And Christ bore that burden. He didn't just bear it, but on the cross, he was crushed by it so that we might not be. You see, Christ experienced and endured the judgment and the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins so that we might experience and receive the forgiveness of sins, so that we might receive eternal life with God and adoption into his family. And when we see Jesus bearing our heaviest burden for us out of his own love for us, when we see him doing that, do you know what that does to us? It makes us not only want to love Jesus more in, in return, but it also makes us want to now love others the way Jesus has loved us. And how did Jesus love us? By bearing our burdens. And now we love one another by bearing one another's burdens. So what? Let me wrap this up. To review, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I want you to notice it means that when we walk in the Spirit, we are blessing horizontally. First, it means that we're not conceited, that we don't despise anyone or envy anyone. To walk in the Spirit means that we gently restore and care for those who are caught in sin, a sin that is harming them and harming others. To walk in the Spirit means that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's all about relationships. When you walk in the Spirit, those around you are blessed. Last June, my, my wife Margaret was diagnosed with cancer. It was the most stressful and the most fearful time of our lives. And we had many burdens, as you could imagine. And one of the larger, more heavier burdens was a financial bur uh, burden. Uh, because Margaret had just retired from teaching, and um, she quit her job, and she was about she was going to look for a new job during the summer. But after she quit her job, a week later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And from that moment on, her focus was on getting better, not finding a new job, which absolutely was what we had to do. But as we faced the medical costs of cancer treatment, and as we faced the loss of her income, we were in a very stressed place financially. Finances had become an extremely heavy burden. Honestly, I, I was losing sleep over it as I was struggling with anxiety and worry, and I was just thinking, how are we going to make this work? We're two-income home. I don't know how this is going to work. 
and, and the burden was crushing. And I remember looking in vain for like, what are, what are some like side jobs that pastors can do to help kind of supplement the income, right? Um, one of my best friends, uh, dear Dr. Alexander Jun, anticipated the financial burden that we might have, and he asked, hey, Owen, do you need help financially? And I remember humbly saying, we do, bro. I, I, I don't know what to do. And then he started a GoFundMe for Margaret. And then within a week, we surpassed the goal that we had set. And Margaret and I were overwhelmed by the number of Christian brothers and sisters from our church and from around the country and even in Korea who loved us and helped us bear our burden with us. And so many of you in our church family, you gave so generously and you helped to bear the burden with us. And Jesus answered our prayers for help through his body, through the people, through his people who loved us and cared for us. And let me tell you this, Margaret and I have never felt so loved in our lives and we felt the love of Christ through you, his church. Now, a little update, Margaret is doing great. Uh, the surgeries were successful. She successfully uh, finished her radiation treatment. Now she's on medication uh, for the next five years, but she's doing well. She's, physically, she's doing great. And, um, and also spiritually, she's doing great. She has grown in her faith. She has, um, continues to love, trust, and worship our Savior even through this. And so I see my wife just blossoming even now spiritually. And we're so grateful for all of that, but we're especially grateful for the way that the love of Jesus became so real and so tangible through the love of his people, through your love for us. And so today, um, I want to say, for those of you who gave, and some of you gave so generously, for those of you who prayed for us, those of you who brought meals over to us, for those of us who took care of us in the hospital, for those of us who hugged us and cried with us, to you, I want to say, you bore our burden with us and you fulfilled the law of Christ and it was stunningly beautiful and I want to thank you. We never felt more loved by a church before and we have never loved a church like this before as well. You know, um, people have asked me recently, so Pastor Owen, um, are you going to go back to California? Your kids are out of the house, your empty nesters. Are you looking to go back with a tinge of nervousness? And to you, I want to say, Virginia has become home for us because we have found our home in you. You are our home. So Lord willing, we hope to be a part of this church family for a long time. And I want to, Lord willing, serve you as your pastor for as long as I'm a pastor. Now, I don't know how many more years of pastoral ministry I have left, maybe 10, 12, 15 years. I don't know. But whatever years that the Lord gives me, I want to give to you. To serve you as your pastor because we love this church. And over the next 10, 15 years, we want to help bear your burdens with you. And we want to fulfill the law of Christ for you the way you did for us. And so, Christ Central, if it is the Lord's will, 
Let's walk together by the Spirit and let's bear one another's burdens as we walk through the ups and downs in this life together, as we worship and serve our Savior together, as we endure suffering and losses together, as we celebrate wins together until the Lord Jesus brings us all safely home to his heavenly kingdom one day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our true burden bearer. Because of your great love for us, you took our greatest burden, the burden of our sin, the burden of our guilt and shame, the burden of being under the wrath of God for our sins. And yet, Jesus, because of your love for us, you took that upon yourself and you were crushed so that we might not be. And now, Lord Jesus, as we've been loved by you in this void, would you now help us by your spirit to love one another the way you loved us, that we might resemble you by bearing one another's burdens. In your name we pray, amen. Let's all rise.